Revelation chapter 18 in your Bibles, and we'll read a couple verses and pray together, and I hope you'll, you'll do your best to open your hearts to what the Spirit of God has to say. This book is coming to a close. What a book the book of Revelation is for all of us in these days, of course, and all days for that matter. Revelation 18 verse 1, John says, after these things, what things? The things that we went through Sunday night, in fact, so many things. But after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. What a sight that must be. An angel comes down with great power. The brightness of it lightens the earth, because as we know, there's darkness now everywhere. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And is become the habitation of devils, in the hold of every foul spirit, in the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Let's pray. Father, please help us to understand, to embrace, to believe with faith, Lord, what your word says. We thank you for it. We thank you for this time that we have, just as your people, to assemble together and to hear what the Spirit saith to the church. Please speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 18. It is basically a funeral dirge. It is a chapter that describes the reactions to the fall, to the death, to the destruction of a thing called Babylon that we looked at a little bit last week. And one is the reaction of two different reactions. One is the reaction of the people on this earth to that fall. And the other is the reaction of those in heaven to the same exact event. As we noted in our study on Sunday night, Babylon's a name that God gives to the false church. There's going to be a sort of a one great religion overall, at least run by the Antichrist in the last days. Babylon, in that sense, is more of a spiritual metaphor than a political one. However, because of what it says about the harlot, the fake church, fake prophet, riding on the back of the beast, which is the political ruler. So the picture is the church is riding on the back of the state. It's also uh, a reminder, and also, by the way, what it says in this chapter, that by the end of the tribulation, the church and the state are so intertwined that they're basically, at that point, the same thing. For example, again, verse 2, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. There's two falls. And has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Why? For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her. This is spiritual fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed, again, spiritual fornication with her, the church, the kings and the church. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. In other words, just as it has been in time past, the religious system of this period is going to wield tremendous economic power. So, what's coming? And what's the shadows of what we can see that's coming? We see the shadows, not the fulfillment. What's coming? It's a system that the Bible says is set up by Satan himself that is political, economic, and religious. And of course, since the religion is a fake one, a false one, it includes what verse 2 says, look at it, is the habitation of devils 
and demons. In other words, modern science by this point, having proved itself uh, incapable, having proved itself through psychology and medication, that word pharmakai that's used for sorcery in the book of Revelation, they just pass out, man, they pass out antidepressants and so on and so forth like candy. But having shown itself to be incapable to do anything about the diseases of the soul, the diseases of the mind. I mean, modern science today, with all of our enlightenment, now they've gone so far backwards they can't even identify male and female. They can't. They refuse to. And it will turn more and more in this book, as they already are, by the way, to the occult world for answers and for cures. You do understand that there's always a link between spiritism, demons, and pantheism and idolatry. Always. I noticed a camp the other day for little kids. They go to learn to bond with nature. Nothing wrong with that. All of nature and the stars testifies that there's a creator and a God. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Our kids should be in nature, but in this camp, what they do is in order to get in touch with nature, for example, before they eat in the mess hall, they have to go out and they have to, before they feed themselves, they have to feed a tree and give thanks to the tree and to Mother Earth. And that's mild compared to what's coming with this new Babylon. But it's coming that way. Look at verse 9. It says, And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Now, folks, here again is where you're going to see something. You're going to see this great dichotomy. There's wailing here, lamenting, sorrow, tears. On this earth, it's sorrow and wailing, but in heaven, you're going to see in a moment, in heaven, there's the exact opposite reaction. And it's kind of shocking, frankly. So what's it say? Look at verse 11. And the merchants of the earth. Okay, those are your billionaires and millionaires and business people. The merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. The merchants of gold and silver and precious stones, and it just goes on in verse 12 and 13 and 14, and then verse 15, the merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. What? For in one hour so great riches has come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and made a trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, the great city, wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour she is made desolate. Now, now think about this for a moment. So all of the hopes and dreams at the beginning of the tribulation with these promises, you can't buy or sell with the mark of the beast. And people are going to get rich 
obviously very wealthy out of this, this satanic system. But that quick it'll be gone, the Bible says. You know, this past Sunday was 9-11. And you may remember when those two towers in the World Trade Center were destroyed, the immediate reaction of most people in Washington, even. And then for sure later on in the media. And what continues to be really the sole concern of the powerful against terrorism is the economy. It's attacking, quote, our way of life. They have come against our, our way of life. Over and again, we are told that the cost of the attack and the cost of the war against terror, the cost, it's, it's almost always economic, which is it should be. But folks, it's just a reminder, the fact that for those who are in authority, those who are, are business folk and making their money, that's all they care about. The greatest shock and fear of like those attacks back in 9-11 wasn't so much loss of life. In fact, it's not even loss of life in our major cities that our politicians care about now. It's what's it going to do to me, what's it going to do to my business or my power or my reelection? It's loss of commerce. And I want to remind you what Jesus said and by principle. He said, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. Your heart always follows your investment. So you can imagine this scene in the Bible, not only does a building fall down or two buildings fall down, it says the entire city, this city is the seat of all world economic power. And all the pride and perversion and the presumption will be gone at that point. And the text says over and over again, in one hour, in one hour. And again, going back to Sunday, I was watching, they were playing some of the videos of the Twin Towers, and this time they sort of sped it up. And the left side of the screen, I could see the countdown on the clock, 8.35, 8.36, 8.37. And then then I looked at that clock and realized just how quickly. Remember how quickly those buildings came down. And of course, that was part of what made that whole day so shocking and surreal one hour they're here and the next hour they're literally gone man the weeping and the wailing and the mourning when in this time satan's built this this fake kingdom the whole world city and system of hope and prosperity and human achievement destroyed in an hour the earth mourns but what happens in heaven what are, what are angels and saints going to be doing in glory over the very same event? Now, you have to wrap your mind around this. Some people will be offended by it. Look at chapter 18, verse 20. The command is what? Rejoice over her. Now, verse 19, we just read it. They cast dust in their heads, alas, the great city. Verse 20 is, rejoice over her, thou heaven. And ye holy apostles and prophets. Why? For God hath avenged you on her. Chapter 19, verse 1. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia. Praise God. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great horde. Again, this is the, this is the harlot which did corrupt the earth with their fornication and avenge the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, what? Hallelujah. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. They're rejoicing, folks. Verse 4, the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen. 
Hallelujah. Verse 5, a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as a voice of many waters, and as a voice of mighty thundering, saying what? Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, folks, look, it might be kind of hard, maybe, for us to imagine people in heaven singing hallelujah over the very same event that people on earth are weeping and mourning over. It's important to know that this is people in heaven doing this. No one on earth, it says, is rejoicing. And in part, the reason is, in heaven, you have an eternal and holy perspective. We see things as God sees them. Heaven sees the truth Far more than we do. So you know what heaven sees destroyed in one hour? Heaven's not rejoicing because businesses fall or people lose their wealth. No, what heaven sees in one hour is chapter 18 and verse 5. For her sins have reached unto heaven. Her sins have reached unto heaven and God hath remembered her iniquities. And then in verse 24 again. In her was found in Babylon, in this system, the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. All of them. You know, it's interesting. Revelation 19 marks the very first time the word hallelujah is found in the New Testament. Did you know that? First time. Now, in the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms, the word hallelujah, hallelujah, same thing, is used very often. But in the New Testament, it doesn't appear until the very end of the end. And the reason, in part, is chapter 19, verse 3. And again, they said, hallelujah, and her smoke rose up, here it is, forever and ever. Now, wait a minute, forever? What's he saying? He is saying that this is not just another judgment. This is not just Sodom. This is not just a World Trade Center tragedy where a year later the debris is all cleaned up and then a few years later they start getting contracts and they start rebuilding again. No, 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 this is it. It's forever now. So that this is the last of power and authority and influence being abused by Satan and man. Did you notice what it says about merchandisers in chapter 18 and verse 13? The very last line that's listing all these things, these products, and the last thing says, and chariots and slaves and souls of men. Pastor, you mean to tell me that people will be selling their bodies in, and their very lives? I love it, they're doing it now. For all the talk of slavery, the slavery that exists today, you know, Frontline did a story not too long ago about wealthy men in L.A. and New York City, very wealthy men, who secretly traveled to third world countries, poverty-stricken nations, to buy mostly little boys as their own. Many of them are being smuggled illegally back into America. Human trafficking, executives, influential people. And almost nobody's paying any attention or cares. A few people. These men whose lusts are degraded and perverted as it gets. They're exploiting the poverty of the third world by defiling and merchandising boys and girls and human trafficking, chattel, slavery. 
And of course, since we're talking about a religious, political, economic system in the last days, it says they traffic in the souls. In the souls of men. It's a reminder of all the ramifications of the mark of the beast. See, once that happens, once they have power over food and literally water and selling and buying, they have power over everything. In so many ways, Babylon will be merchandising in the souls of men. It is no wonder that God's people were told in verse 4 to get out of her, to not be partaker of her iniquities. Which brings us back, now follow this, to this fake religion. Because it's being set up. And how the beast and the kings hate the harlot. Remember we studied this last Sunday night. They turn on her because they used religion. Satan doesn't share the limelight with anybody in the end. But when the people realize the totality of God's judgment and the utter destruction, now they're weeping and they're wailing. But heaven's rejoicing. Babylon had martyred the sincerest and the sweetest people ever to walk on the earth. Remember that scripture of whom the world was not worthy? The sweetest people ever to live. They've blasphemed God. They mocked his word, trafficked in the souls of men. But heaven's rejoicing because no more, you see. It took this to get that. This is the last time innocent blood will ever be shed. This is the last time evil men in clerical garb and and fancy business suits will molest little children. This is the end of a world that's filled with injustice and murder and thievery and pornography and the end of deception and oppression and starvation and disease. Look at chapter 19 since we looked there in verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the the voice of a great multitude. Now John's hearing this because this is what's going to happen. And as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, he's doing the best he can to describe this amazing chorus, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. By the way, do you recognize that line? You probably do, maybe, as the closing chorus in Handel's Messiah. So guess what? This Christmas three months away or so, when you hear some choir in New York or London singing, Hallelujah, 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 for the Lord God. Think about this. The next time while you're listening, ask yourself if the folks who are singing it are thinking about the smoke of Babylon rising from the debris of judgment. Because that's where it comes from. The Hallelujah chorus really comes from this moment. The people on earth are grieving. The people in heaven are gladdened. And it's because it is done. And of course, the main reason we will be glad, the Bible says, is that finally now that the false prophet, the false church, the harlot is gone. Now, finally, it is time for the bride. Yes, there is a war. And it's called Armageddon. But the war is what will introduce and allow for the wedding. Look at chapter 19 again in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, 
And his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Now folks, please, please don't miss just the next few minutes of this study and these scriptures. Now, if you've been here for all these weeks, even months, you know that for a long time John has been shown the vision, for example, of this, this, this harlot. This satanic religion full of every foul spirit. And the Bible says a habitation of, of devils. But now, after all of this, John sees a bride. There's nothing more beautiful than a bride. And yes, this bride, who stands in vivid contrast to the abominable woman in chapter 17 and chapter 18, she is presented in Scripture as a woman of virtue, robed and ready to take her place as the true bride of Jesus Christ. And you know, in order to truly understand who the bride of Christ represents, it's important to remember, for example, the words of Paul. Let me read to you, you've got them up there on the screen, Ephesians chapter 5, familiar words. Verse 25 says, verse 24, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Here it is. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word. Why? That he might present it to himself. A glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, folks, that's a very clear metaphor, but it's not the only one in the Bible of Christians, believers today, the church, being the bride of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is also a very familiar text. Verse 2, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, Jesus, that I present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, we're not going to belabor it, but you know what we mean. The whole idea of the New Testament saints being the bride of Christ. It's not just here in Revelation 19. And also, beloved, it's no accident that the harlot, which is the false church, is contrasted with the bride of Christ, the true church. Back in Revelation 19, you'll notice what it says in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And, hath made, and his wife hath made herself ready. Can I ask you a question? How exactly, if we're the bride of Christ, how exactly did the bride, quote, make herself ready? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 3, which we studied, and according to 2 Corinthians 5, we all, as New Testament saints and the billions and billions in the world, we're going to one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ. To receive rewards and at the same time whatever we did that wasn't noble or right or the right motive the bible calls it wood hay and stubble all of that's going to be burned away all of it all of the wood all the hay all the stubble is going to be tried by fire 
and it'll be gone. And that means that all that's going to remain is the righteousness of the saints, and of course, we'll be clothed in the righteousness of our own Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 19, verse 9 again. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Well, what would a bride in a wedding gown be without a wedding? Right? The only thing is, follow this carefully. What God is using as an illustration here is a Jewish, a Hebrew wedding in the custom of Bible times. Well, obviously, what he has in mind is something that John understands. In fact, John and Paul and the apostles, something they're very familiar with, not the custom of weddings in 21st century West or United States of America. For example, in our culture, in fact, in most Western cultures, when we think of a wedding, we realize that all of the eyes are on the bride. I mean, everything, really. Bridal showers, bridal shops, wedding preparations, wedding ceremony itself. All of it puts the bride as the center of attention. And so much so that anymore, the guy standing next to her, the guy, meh. He's not even called the best man. Isn't that funny? This guy, this guy over here is the best man. This is just the guy, the groom. <laughs> and this guy who's standing up here, okay, Wes, whatever, this guy, he doesn't spend a lot of time and money on a gown, I hope. <laughs> on anything. He just goes to rent a suit, gets the cheapest thing available. Not her. That's here in the West. In John's day, it's quite the opposite. Because in that culture, the attention was placed on the bridegroom. Chapter 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. It would be very, very helpful, I think, here for us to understand the kind of wedding Paul, John, and our Lord Jesus always had in mind when they use it as an illustration. It really explains the parable of the virgins, if you've read that in the Gospels, and you're like, well, I don't get what it means. In Bible times, a wedding would begin with what was called the arrangement. This was the time when the fathers of the groom and the bride negotiated a wedding contract. And it's one in which the bride's father was given a bride price as a dowry. In other words, the bride price for God the Father was the blood of his only son. And then, of course, at that time, there was the betrothal period after that. This was the phase that was essentially a preparation. And it was a time when and it lasted up to a year when the bridegroom would work long, long hours to prepare a home, a house for the bride, and usually near or attached to the father's house. So you think of John 14. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. The groom, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. At the end of the betrothal period, the groom would then leave his father's house with great fanfare. And again, you can read about the parable of the virgins. And he would go out to claim his bride. He would have this big processional whereby he would get her, take her home, their new home, 
And then the ketubah, the wedding document, was signed. And on the next day, the marriage feast would begin. This was the time when everybody celebrated on their behalf, behalf of the bride and the groom. It was really the honeymoon, and that lasted up to a week, depending upon how wealthy the father was. Well, again, John chapter 14, the groom has gone to prepare us a place. And then the rapture in chapter 4 of this book, he takes his bride, he takes the church home. And then the judgment seat of Christ, perfection. The bride is proven pure and clothed in righteousness. And then the marriage supper, which essentially lasts, it begins, but in some ways it actually lasts for a thousand years because this father is very, very wealthy. And then shall we ever be with the Lord. Verse 9, it says, And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the two sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. That means the angel. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, John is overwhelmed. Why? He's overwhelmed. So much so, this is a mistake for him to fall down. To fall on his knees before an angel. But you know, he's just in awe. After all that he's seen, that we've been learning about, I remind you, he's 90 years of age. He's, he's on Alcatraz, if you will, in Patmos, held there by a pagan ruler. And he has seen and heard so much in this vision. Martyrdom and bloodshed and deceit and spiritual fornication and, and demons and Satan and a false prophet and so much bloodshed. So that, wow, he sees this bride. He sees the church chased, the bride of Christ. And he falls down. When he realizes how it all turns out, he can't help himself. He can't. You know, Albert Barnes, the Bible expositor, once said something that I wrote in the front of one of my Bibles. I wrote it when I was a teenager. He said, the whole world is fortified against Christianity. And it is. It always has been. Beloved, what we have studied the last few months about spiritual Babylon, how that ever since Cain slew Abel, ever since that moment, the works crowd, the broad road that leads to destruction, everybody that believes that you can be religious to get to heaven, the works crowd has always persecuted the grace crowd. Go through history and see who the martyrs are, the ones who died at the hands of Babylon, religious, powerful people. They're the ones who believe in salvation by grace through faith. And what did the Lord Jesus' seven letters to seven churches show? That the bride of Christ would be attacked. Remember the seven letters? The church at Laodicea, the church, they would be attacked within and without. That the church, the bride, would suffer persecution, martyrdom, false teachers, divisions, schisms. All of that was in John's day, and it certainly has continued all the way until today. And you know, sometimes you might wonder, what, 
this is the bride of Christ? I mean, churches I know about have church splits. Like the one Baptist guy, he got stranded on an island all by himself. All by himself, cast away by himself. Finally, he got rescued. Coast Guard noticed he built three huts. They said, why? He said, well, the first one I built is my house. What's the second one? He said, the second one, that's my church. They said, what's the third one? He said, well, that's a church I used to go to. There's a Baptist for you, right? But you see, what John realizes is that local New Testament churches and New Testament believers, with all the flaws and the outside attacks and the enemies, including Satan, still at the end of the age, loved by the groom and purified and perfected by the Father. That's why the Bible says he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Aren't you glad? It's not ashamed. Verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren. Now, now this is very interesting what he says next. That have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. I want you to hear this. This unique reference to Christ as simply Jesus. Do you know that's one of the most unusual texts in all the New Testament regarding the Lord Jesus Christ? And the fact that it is unusual ought to remind us that after the resurrection, read the Gospels, I promise you you'll see that, only the enemies of Christ flippantly called him Jesus. Remember the Lord Jesus in John 13, 13 said, Ye call me Master and Lord, and yeah, and well, ye say that I am. When he's called Jesus, just Jesus in the Gospels, it's because his humanity is in view which is precisely what's happening here with this angel. What he says in verse 10, the testimony of Jesus worship God. In other words, the Son of God, follow this, in His humanity is the spirit and the sum and the substance of all the prophecies of this book. This really is the Son of Man as the Son of God. All of this, this whole book points to Him. So that the very purpose of prophecy is not just to give us a glimpse in the future and to satisfy our curiosity at all. This is to bear witness to the Lord Jesus. He is the central figure of all Scripture and all history. John calls this book in chapter 1 the revelation of Jesus Christ. So yeah, it is, if you think about it, it's startling to see the angel address Christ with just the word Jesus. But there's a reason. And if you ever do it, there ought to be a reason as well. You should not do it. As though so often in these days in prayer and music, just Jesus, Jesus, and trying to drag him down as a man from Galilee with sandals on. He is so much more than that. And that's why it says right after that, verse 11, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon a white, ho white, white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth a winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. 
And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow. This is not the Jesus of modern day pluralistic, humanistic, touchy, feely society. This is the Jesus of Philippians 2.10 which says, At the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. And he has come now in chapter 19 to settle accounts with the godless crowd that's been running this earth. For thousands of years. This is God's reckoning with the beast and the false prophet and Satan the dragon and all of his followers. And as we're going to see in our studies ahead, once the Lord appears on the scene, guess what? It is over. We're going to battle. It's going to be like Lord of the Rings at the very end when the return of the king comes. We're all going to sort. No, we're not pulling any swords out. Jesus just opens his mouth. It doesn't last any longer than for the word to come out of the Savior's mouth. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You know, in 47 B.C., a Roman army under Julius Caesar defeated the forces of King Pharsus. You may remember after that victory, Caesar returned back to Rome and he gave his famous announcement. Veni, vidi, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. Well, beloved, one day, as it says in verse 9, these are the true sayings of God. The cry is basically going to be, Jesus came, we saw, and he conquered. And we will sing hallelujah. Hallelujah, praise be to God. Not because... Not because we delight necessarily in the judgment of sinners, but rather because we recognize that God is just and righteous and good and vengeance belongs to him and not to us. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And God's people said, amen. Father, we are thankful for your word. And we are thankful, Father, that by your grace, your mercy, not only did you give us the book of Genesis, where it all began in a garden. But you also gave us the book of Revelation where it will end ultimately in a garden. Thank you for showing us what things shall be hereafter. And in showing us, Father, please increase our faith. But also at the same time, increase our understanding and our reverence for the holiness, the righteousness of our Lord and Savior. And then our courage to go out in this world as so many before us to be faithful. Be thou faithful unto death, Jesus said to us. We thank you for your word tonight in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.